My name is Joshua Kirst. I'm the preaching pastor here at Disciples, and uh, we're in the joy of uh, a, se- a sweet season here, finishing our first year here at this new campus. Uh, God's doing amazing things. Um, first hour was wonderful. I'm excited for our timing, God's Word today. If you'll grab your Bibles with me, turn to the book of Jonah. You'll find that book uh, buried in the latter part of the Old Testament, uh, just after Obadiah and just before Micah. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have some in the back of the room we'd love for you to be able to use. Uh, scripture will be on the screen as well as we dig into God's Word. Um, today, as we move into what might be my favorite part of the narrative of this testimony of Jonah, verse 4 through 16, uh, I wanted to set the table and remind us of where we were last week in verse 1 through 3. If you missed that opening sermon, you may catch our podcast online the website and uh, hear the just the roots and the foundation of this book of Jonah. We understand it better for, for what's to come. Um, but let me read you Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, and said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. As we move into verse 4 this morning, we find that Jonah is now at sea. What we're about to see is that Jonah is at sea not only literally, but also figuratively uh, due to the fact that He is trying to run from the holy instruction and command of God upon his life. Uh, To do this, he has resigned from his post, his prominent post, as a prophet of God. Uh, He did this uh, to do what he wanted and not what God called him to do. Uh, Talk about fear and and, and guilt and, and sadness and lostness and uh, the plethora of emotions that Jonah is going through is uh, in his soul as, as he is feeling super lost in, in so much that has so quickly changed due to his rebellion in his sin from God's command on his life. You might relate to this, um, what it feels like to be at sea. Maybe in your current circumstances, Or maybe you've been there before as you look back on on your own story. Uh, The reality of our broken world means broken circumstances. Uh, The reality of our sin is is real consequences. When we get to this place in our lives where we're feeling at sea, we've lost our our moorings. A mooring is is a tie down. It's a way to anchor the boat or the ship to a place you want it to stay uh, to a desired location. And, and, and as Christians, we can, in our sin, lose our moorings at times when we're not anchored to the Lord or His truths. When this happens, we become adrift uh, into dangerous waters even, uh, turning to things that we think will satisfy, or trying to cope with the pain in ways that don't honor God, uh, trying to cover up lies uh, that we're believing or telling ourselves. 
The nautical metaphor is one that the author of Hebrews uses in the New Testament to bring warning to this very kind of situation that we can find ourselves in, in our faith journey. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. When we fail to hold fast to God's word, it means we drift into waters in which we don't belong. We end up believing things that are not true or quoting things that are not biblical. We end up embracing things that we have no business drawing near to. It begins to affect every part of our life. This is how we become adrift or lost at sea. Uh, Let's look now to what the Lord has in store for Jonah. Look with me at verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So here we see God in his perfect providence sends a storm and and riles up the sea so strong that the ship that Jonah is on is threatened to the point of it breaking apart. So understand this is a legit storm. The the wind is tearing across the deck and the mast. The the, the sea billows are rolling and, and, and rocking and pounding so much that the ship is not just rocking and riding huge mountain waves No, it's being beat up. It's being tossed about in such a way that the ship is upon the brink of collapse. See with me the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God in his discipline and rule over the situation to accomplish his perfect will. We'll come back to this at the end. But for now, let's look further at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, little g-God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These sailors were most likely Phoenician sailors in that region who were known for their seagoing vessels, known for their skill on the waters. The text gives us insight. The situation is now so serious that it's moved beyond their skills, their ability to navigate the storm, to get themselves out of it. Uh, Their their doom is pending, and so they quickly move beyond man-made answers to hurling prayers to false gods. See, even heathens, even pagans, in the midst of life's greatest crisis, will call out to whatever their higher power might be as the temporary is threatened with the eternal. The problem is, every prayer that is not said to the one true God is a prayer going nowhere. False gods... False idols, so-called higher powers, maybe even dead relatives, or anything else that mankind would cry out to other than the one true God is of no help. 
God says it well in another minor prophet, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19. We had the privilege to study this minor prophet years ago. It's also on our podcast for your study at home. God says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, or to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with silver and gold, and there is no breath at all in it. Here God expresses his condemnation of the sin of idolatry. Woe to him who says to the wood, come to life, or the lifeless stone, wake up. We must see how absurd it is to stand before a piece of wood or some cold stone and cry out to it, arise, awake. We must see the depth of our sin in these things. When we cry out to anything in prayer but the one true God, we're guilty of this. A false god, an idol, a dead relative cannot hear and cannot act or help. Elijah said it well when he mocked the false, false god Baal, popular god of, um, of false religion back in that day. Um, there was a, a, a trial to put on display who the true God was. And in it, as we look at 1 Kings 18, 26-27, we climb into the climax of this narrative. And it says, They took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah, the prophet of the one true God, mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god, little g-god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Elijah is mocking the false god, asking if he's using the restroom or asleep, since he's not responding to the prophet's prayers, call to him for action. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is clear in his commandments. Exodus chapter 23 through 5, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth or beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, righteously jealous. Church, we must be more loving and be more clear with people that God puts in our path, maybe even loved ones that we know, who boldly profess in arrogance or ignorance that they pray to a higher power or false god. We must see the utter failure of man in sin to try to call out or lean on anything that is not the one true God. Another quick observation here before we move on the fact that these other men are even in this horrible situation is because of Jonah's sin 
This reminds me of something that we must never forget in this life. Running from God's will in sin means the consequences of your sin often affects other people in addition to you. Jonah's sin is now affecting these blue-collar sailors who are tossing their valuables and their precious cargo, their livelihood, into the sea to try to save themselves from pending death because of Jonah's sin. May the Holy Spirit bring conviction and awareness into our lives when our selfish, unrepentant sin not only is affecting us, but others, other beloved people around us. May the Holy Spirit use this conviction and awareness to bring you to a more deeply, speedy confession and repentance for your sin for your good and for theirs. Look at the second part of verse 5 with me. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. (laughs) Really? Supposedly in jail, there's a saying that goes like this. You can tell who the guilty guy is because he's the one sound asleep. Look at Jonah in the midst of this crazy storm, nothing small about it, about to tear this vessel apart, tossing it around like a rag doll. Everyone's in a panic on the deck, clamoring for saving grace. And the guy who God is targeting with the storm is below asleep. We have to stop and consider Why? Why is Jonah able? How is Jonah able to sleep in this moment? And there's two reasons I'd like for us to consider. Number one, Jonah is sleeping during this intense storm and moment because he knows who God is and whatever God wants to do, he will do. I said it last week and it's worth repeating. The true prophets of God had a front row seat of all that God was capable of. Standing before nations. If God wanted a nation to fall to its knees or be wiped out, it would be so. If God wanted an evil people to repent and to then honor him, they would. He he knows what God's able to do. And, And when we understand the sovereignty of God... There is a peace in the midst of the storm that relieves the worry and the fret by which we cling to the temporary all too much. Can you think of someone else who was able to sleep in the midst of a a boat at sea? True, peaceful sleep. Someone who had total confidence in God's control over the situation. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, 23 through 27. I'll read it to you briefly. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He then rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled. What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Here's our early glimpse in the story of Jonah, of how Jesus is the better and truer Jonah. The one whom all of Scripture points to is Jesus. The, the one who creates and sustains all things is Jesus. The only one who can give us complete peace in the midst of life's greatest storms is Jesus. Do you know the peace? True peace that only Jesus can give you in the midst of life's hardest storms? Jesus said himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Jonah is sleeping during the storm because he knows who God is. And whatever God wants to be done will be done. So why fret about it? That's the positive side of why he's asleep. And while I think he has a keen view of this truth, I actually don't think it's the main reason why he's asleep. I think the fact that he is physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted from his rebellion against God's clear command for his life is the reason why he's asleep. We could say that he's dead asleep. See, the Hebrew word used here for sleep, describing Jonah's sleep, is not just tired sleeping, so tired he could sleep through anything. Some of us know those moments. Not just escape sleeping, so sad that you could just escape. The Hebrew word used here is also used to describe when God put Adam to sleep and removed from him one rib to create woman. It is a total unconsciousness. It is dead asleep. See, for Jonah, he has gone through an identity implosion. He feels dead. And this happens when we have an overgrip on the temporary things of this life that can be undone, taken, abandon us at any moment. We feel dead. For example, if your source of life and joy is your family or a family member, and all of a sudden they die or abandon you, a spouse, parents, child, sibling. You feel like dying. You feel like your bottom's falling out. If your source of life and joy is your career or your success, and all of a sudden you lose your job or your scholarship or your retirement, it's gone. You can feel like dying. 
If your source of life and joy is your stuff, and you lose it in a fire, or in a robbery, or in a wreck, you can feel like dying. You can be undone. This reveals the way our flesh is at work in sin, where we overcling to the things of creation. We have idols of the heart that we lean into and love too much. Question 34 in the Word of Truth Catechism, what is the sin of idolatry? Sometimes we think of idolatry, we think of what we spoke of earlier, stone and wood that one might bow to or call out to for power or action. But idolatry is bigger, it's wider than that. Consider the answer. Idolatry is worshiping or finding hope, identity, significance, purpose, or security in anything other than in God, our Creator. See, this is what Jonah is in the middle of. He had an over-affection for his identity as a successful prophet of God. He had a deep-seated love for his nation to the point where they were an idol in his life. And you have to see, an, an idol of the heart is no different than a false god. They both are not God. They both can't satisfy you like only God can. They both can't help like only God can. See, Jonah's in, he was in a great place. He, he was at the top of his game. But all this changed when he considered what God called him to do, to go to Nineveh and preach to his enemies, knowing that God is able to have them actually repent, knowing that that would change the game for him and his nation, his people. He had such a grip on those things, he denied God. He ran. See, running often, disobedience often is about identity. It reveals the centrality of our hearts. We have to slow down. And do some real business to answer some questions today, this week. And I ask you, what are you really living for? What are you allowing to compete with God for the centrality of your heart? What is competing with Jesus Christ to be your functional Savior? If your life is defined by anything other than God... What happens when that thing leaves, dies, or fails you? Back to Jonah, verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It's a pagan captain, right? So he, he speaks of calling this man who's sleeping to do what the other heathens are doing. Call to your little G-God, whoever that might be for you. We're desperate for something. It's a pretty good sign that you've resigned to death sleep when the pagan captain has to ask the professional man of faith to pray. Right? Revealing Jonah's sinful apathy. 
for those around him who are perishing. His throwing in the towel. Have you become apathetic to your situation where you're not praying anymore? Where Christ in you is not continuing the fight to do what honors him? To make the hard decisions? To give you endurance in ways that only he can? Do you notice the words of the captain are familiar? He says, arise, call out. Where has Jonah been told to arise and call out? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, verse 1. Verse 2, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. How haunting these words must have been for him to hear from this pagan captain in the midst of this moment. A direct reminder of God's clear word for his life. This surely was a source of guilt and a reminder of his rebellion against God. In God's providence, he sends a pagan sailor to awaken Jonah to call him and remind him of what he should do. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. That way we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Here we see evidence of the one true God at work in his sovereignty, in stark comparison to the deadly silence of the false gods that they had cried out to. So far we've seen God is sovereign in this scene and creating and stirring this storm, this furious storm, bringing his sovereign discipline and rule over the situation to accomplish God's perfect will, despite man's sin. And here we see God direct the dice to show the discipline of God is put on Jonah. It's directed for Jonah. Again, the Word of Truth Catechism, question 18. Does God control and have authority over all things? The answer is yes. He rules in and over all things. He is in control of all things. God does all that he wills with creation. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is holy from the Lord. There is no such thing as luck. Lady luck. That lady doesn't exist. She is a man-made creation of man. Sinful man. God is sovereign over all things. Whatever worldview you've had to this point in your life by which you believe that somehow God is impotent or hands-off or affected by what we do and then having to respond is not a biblical view of God. The biblical view of God is clear that He is truly sovereign over all things. This is the doctrine of God's providence that God controls and directs all things. He, he does so to fulfill his purposes after the counsel of his own holy will for his glory. God is the supreme being who answers to no one and who has the absolute right to do with his creation as he desires. Nothing happens without his ordination. I've 
literally sat with people and watched them walk away from me to say to my face, I don't believe in that God. And the sad reminder of how quick we are to make God into the image we want him to be in. Not according to the way he's revealed himself, according to his written holy word. What a joy it's been to see so many of you climb into a, a good and whole view of the sovereignty of God. See it change your life and embolden your faith. Take you to new places you've never been. Church, God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our praise. Even when the storms are raging and the roll of the dice is going not the way you wanted it to go, we trust that He is at the helm of all creation perfectly, that He will govern it perfectly according to His perfect and holy will. As much as you don't like what that roll of the dice meant for you, you climb out of that fleshly response into faith. You trust Him. You yield to Him. This should cause in us praise, adoration, and awe. This is a cause for, for trusting Him and walking by faith and not by sight. I ask you today, is this you? When the dice does not go your way or to your desired result, do you trust that God is at work in all things for your good, as Romans 8 is clear to pronounce? Even in the things that are hard? Or in the moment not going your way? Do you yield to His will? In verse 7, we see evidence of the one true God in his sovereignty over the dice. In verse 8 through 10, we see the testimony of the one true God. Look with me at verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Before I read verse 9 through 10, consider with me the depth of of this conversation these scared sailors are attempting to have with Jonah in the midst of the boat about to be collapsed, right? It, it, the storm is raging. The, the ship is on the verge of breaking apart, and these guys are playing a game of 20 questions. Many times, this is what happens in the midst of the panic. Not much action. The brain is racing to try to figure out which foot to put which direction to go or not go, to do or not do. One of our elders, Rob, and his wife, Lori, were in our first service, and it brought to mind a, a moment in their life where their faith and their cling to God was tested. They had the family over, family who's here as well, and uh, for a barbecue one night. And the barbecue, the fire got into the box and up the outdoor pillar and up into the ceiling. And in an instant, the house was being flooded with smoke. Thankfully, they were able to get out of the house quickly. I get a phone call. I'm there pretty quick. 20 firefighters. You got different engines, different truck companies are there. It's, it's a scene. The smoke is 
taking over the neighborhood. Everyone's just a little numb. Later, I got to hear what happened between them running out of the house. And when I got there, Rob did what a lot of us men would do is he, he ran back into the house thinking, I surely have enough time to get a couple important things, right? I don't know why, why we guys think we're going to do that. And he ran into the main living room through the door. Now the fire is overwhelming. The smoke is everywhere. And so I asked myself, so what did you go get? You're really curious. What did you decide to go grab? Something ridiculous? Something actually worthwhile? He says, I grabbed nothing. I got into the room and I froze. And I couldn't think of what I needed to go grab. So I just turned and ran back out, which was actually the right thing to do, right? Never should have ran back in the first place. I actually don't know if it was Lori who told me that story, kind of ratting him out, or if he's the one who told me that story. They, they laughed this morning as I retold it. These kinds of moments can be hard when all of a sudden it's upon us. You stop moving, you start questioning. Some have actually challenged the validity of this part of the testimony, the narrative of Jonah. Saying like, really? It's this much on the brink of disaster? These guys are slowing to have this, this thorough discussion and questions and answers? But our own recent history proves to show that bands play music as titanics sink into the sea. Men ask questions in the midst of raging storms. And in this instance, showing that their consciences are being stirred and awakened to the mighty hand and work of God. Look with me now at Jonah's answers. Verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. In these answers, he essentially answers all of their questions but one. That question is, what is your occupation? He confesses his liability to the situation. He confesses his nationality, his religion. But he does not mention his occupation. Revealing to us that Jonah's core identity as a prophet is all but gone. He doesn't reveal that he was a true and faithful prophet of God because he has resigned himself from obedience to God's word and therefore he has no word from the Lord for this situation. Consider with me this. Approximately 700 years later, another ship would cross through the same stretch of the Mediterranean Sea and would encounter a similar storm to wreck that ship. But this voyage carried on it a faithful, devoted servant of God who was obedient to the will of God. His name was the Apostle Paul. He would have a word from God for those who were also with him on the ship, facing pending death. He declared to those with him what the Lord had revealed to him. Acts chapter 27, 22 through 25. I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God 
that it will be exactly as I have been told. Paul exercised his prophetic ministry. Jonah has forfeited his. What is interesting is that Jonah still claims fear and worship of God, even though he's not obeying him. Oh, this is the trapping of many modern churchgoers still today. Are you guilty of singing to the Lord, of testifying that you belong to him, showing up even faithfully to church? But the testimony of your thoughts and your words and your actions tell a different story. They tell a story of disobedience. Despite his own Failures to remain faithful to God in this time of his life, God still uses Jonah to trump all the little g man-made gods the sailors were calling out to by revealing the hand of the one true God, Yahweh, the only one who created all and holds all in his hand. Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. See the providence of God as he uses the testimony of this divine truth to begin to bring conviction to these heathen sailors. Look with me at verse 10 through 12. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The storm is raging all the more. And they are in what must be the final moments, desperate for divine intervention and grace, or sure peril for all on board. Jonah knows that it's due to his sin that he's committed to disobeying God, running from his command to go to Nineveh. So Jonah says, clearly the only way for you to be saved is for me to die. Chuck me overboard into the raging sea, and it will quiet, and you will live. In this, Jonah again points us to Christ, Jesus himself. The type pointing to the anti-type. The one who willingly gave himself up to suffer and die. That he might appease God's divine wrath. That he might satisfy his perfect justice and save undeserving sinful men and women. The difference is that Jonah was in this place due to his own sin. Christ, who never sinned, died for the sin of others. Jonah had to endure the storm he earned by his own sins. Christ threw himself into the storm that others earned by their sin. 
This is the good news of Jesus Christ, the testimony of God's saving grace on people who do not deserve to be forgiven and saved. The one who is purely righteous takes on our deserved wrath for our sin so we can be made new and saved. You can only be saved from drowning in the eternal seas of your own sins by the grace of God through the substitutional sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and trust your life to Jesus alone and be saved. All you who are guilty and still in your sin, be saved and set free by trusting Jesus alone with your life. I pray it be so. Look with me at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They tried to row out of the storm. They tried to save Jonah from peril. But the arm of the Lord pressed that boat all the more, making their imminent death all the more clear. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. The heathens are now praying to the one true God. Their desperate prayer was, as we do this, as we throw this man overboard into the sea, may it please and appease you. Verse 15, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The sea stopped its roar and its rage as it swallowed Jonah into its depths. God's plan to bring Jonah to the brink of his rebellion, where there was nowhere left to run, God's plan is fulfilled. And the sea is now still. Wow. Even bigger. Even bigger. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They throw this guy into the water, he goes under, and the storm's gone. Their response is, fearing God all the more, and they offer a sacrifice to him and make vows to him. But what is amazing is this is not a natural fleshly fear. It is a righteous fear. An acknowledgement that he is the real God, not all these false, phony, fake, man-made things they've been praying to. They had a righteous fear of him who is over all things. They've seen the evidence and they begin to worship him. See those who were committed to the worship of false gods. Heathens who have lived their entire lives for themselves, for their own glory, for their own flesh. They made sacrificial offerings to him and made vows to him. They're worshiping now the one true God. they just seen the power of God on full display. Their own lives 
break to their knees in worship. And God has mercy on the sailors as they trust and commit their lives to him. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, 10 and 11. You will bow before him and declare Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. You will do this in this life because God ordains to give you saving faith by his grace. Or you will do it at judgment before you drink from the eternal cup of wrath yourself. Because you will see. How I pray he gives you saving faith you would die to yourself and your agenda and see the sweet gospel truth of the good news of Jesus, the grace of God to save and set you free, that you would live for him and devote your days to him in every way. How I pray the Lord brings his sovereign storm into your life to wreck it, showing you all the things that you've accumulated in your life are worth nothing in the next that they will be hurled into the sea and sunk to the depths. How I pray you receive the mercy of the Lord. You're saying, Pastor, the mercy of the Lord. I ask you, do you not see what God is doing in bringing this storm? See, we quickly only see the judgment of God on Jonah for his sinful disobedience. The surface reading of this part of the story is God is righteously angry for Jonah's sin and rebellion. And so here comes the judgment of the Lord, right? Does God cause hardship and calamity? Absolutely he does. Even on the righteous in the temporary parts of this life. Does God exercise his righteous judgment on deserving sinners all the time? He does these things to reveal his power and his glory. See with me what God is doing here. The storm is not God's wrath upon Jonah. It's his mercy. If you want to see God's wrath on someone's life, look for the guy who runs from God in sin And God lets him go. That man remains in his sin, never repents in trust in God. Look for the guy or the gal who rebels in sin and the Lord lets him sink. Lets him drown in his sin. But this storm was not Jonah's end. It was God's mean to his repentance. For the next verse declares, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now you look at that alone, you might say, that just sounds like doubly worse death. (laughs) Not only am I sinking to the depths, but I'm now going to be digested. You got to come back next week to understand that it's not what happens. God saves Jonah. God's not done with Jonah. God saves the heathen sailors too. 
The storm was his means to awaken their dead hearts to faith in the one true God. As it is often in people's lives to bring them to the brink of their deadly grip of the temporary, of the creation, in their denial of worship of the creator. You must see with me that often the storms that the sovereign God brings into our lives are God's mercy. It is when God chases us down in our sinful running and rebellion and deep sleep that he says, Awake, O sleeper, repent, turn from your path of sin and rebellion and honor me. Realize this, God often does his biggest work of sanctification in our lives with sovereign storms. With crossroads of crisis and identity in our relationships, in our work, in our families, challenging the treasures of our heart, the things that we've sinfully clung to that have continued to lay wreckage on our testimony, things that we once thought were worth chasing or worth giving, devoting ourselves to in in, in a sinful, overage kind of way. See God's grace. See His mercy in Jonah's life in this storm. Did it hurt? Yes. Yes, it hurt. Was it maybe the worst experience, the hardest crossroads he had ever faced? Likely. And maybe it's that way for you. Many times the greatest acts of mercy God will bring into our lives is the hardest, most sacrificial, most terrifying storm, loss, or challenge you've ever faced. But he does this to bring us to the greatest gift he could give us, himself. That it's in love, a furious love, an amazing grace, that he wrecks the shop of the idols of your heart. To bring you to him. Desperate. Clinging to him alone. That's love. For it's his wrath to let us stay devoted to the things that earn us eternal wrath. It's his grace and his mercy to awaken us to see and savor him alone. If the storm is what it takes to finally help you loosen your death grip on the things of creation that you have overclung to and live for, that he brings you to see and savor him above all else, then that storm, then that loss, then that death, then that accident, then that setback, then that catastrophe is absolutely worth it. Because there is nothing greater he can give us than him. See his mercy. May your faith abound as the reality of the temporary rages. If you belong to him, may your faith abound. May you repent of that sin and return and be faithful. The scriptures are clear that those whom he saved from his wrath will never experience his wrath. That means if you truly belong to the Lord, then the storm is not his wrath. It's only for those who have continued to deny him, continue to live for themselves. Even some who scripture will say have been religiously devoted, but they're still the Lord of their own lives. 
by which his wrath is upon them because they don't belong to Christ. But for those who are his kids, his kids of grace, to leave you to be adrift, clinging to the idols that your flesh longs for, That would be being in his wrath, but he doesn't. He loves us, so he, so he does what he needs to do to bring us to repentance, to bring us to the brink. To leave people to the idols of their hearts, to let them sink into the abyss as they cling to those temporary things, as they, as they take them overboard into the sea, that's the evidence of God's wrath on an unbeliever. This is why no matter how much it costs, how tragic the event, how life-altering the storm is to you, if he brings you to nothing but him, he has brought you to the greatest gift he could give you. See his mercy in that. So I ask you, how have you responded to the biggest storms in your life? Did you repent? Did you loosen your grip to the things that were dragging you overboard? Did you reorient your heart in devotion to trust in God, even despite what you don't understand and can't see? Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, 34 through 37, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The only way you die in the end is if you keep running. You keep clinging to the temporary things, the idols, the false gods. But know this. There is love and there is life beneath the waves of the storm. There is grace beneath the storm in a way that only God can bring it. The one greater than Jonah has come. His name is Jesus. The true Jonah, Jesus Christ, was thrown into the real storm of God's wrath and he sank for you and me who trust in him. God let him sink and take on that wrath so you and I don't have to. This is his mercy at work in these things. This is his grace. If you are unbelieving, in Jesus, my prayer is you repent of your sin and you trust Jesus. You die to yourself and he becomes the Lord of your life. And you're saved. You see that grace and it overwhelms you. It takes hold of your life. For the believing, loosen your grip on the things of creation. Walk by faith and not by sight. Next time you're in the midst of the storm, know who is sovereign over all things. God alone. 
who is greater than all things, the only one who can satisfy God alone, know that the God of mercy is at work in your life if you trust in him alone. As the storms rage, experience and know the furious love of God for his children whom he has in his eternal grip. Amen? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatsoever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Pray with me. Father God, we adore you. We, we love you. We are thankful for your appointment that we would be here today, that to have your word, your written word in, in our language, to be able to study it and understand it and dissect it and apply it. I pray the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction places where we can truly turn from sin and turn to new practices that honor you, change our grip, to be awakened to, to life and the testimony of Christ, to faith that endures through the storms, to worship for you, to see your mercy on us, to save undeserving sinners because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. I praise you, Lord, for the salvation of these undeserving Sailors, I praise you, Lord, for the salvation of those who might be hearing this sermon today and finally laying down their deadly doing, the treasures and the idols of their heart to truly cling to you alone and trust in you above all else and be saved. To begin that journey of being sanctified and maturing, to have faith at work in ways that is amazing, even in the midst of life's greatest trials. In all the ways in your sovereign plan, you will use our days and our situations. May our faith abound and not waver. We love you. And we acknowledge your furious love for us. It is amazing. And we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.